Hey, Travis Rogers here. When you're not listening to me on the Lakers pre- and post-game shows, tune in to The Experience with Laferne Cusack, where she goes beyond the play and focuses on athletes, fans, and the biggest events that inspire and shape our community. Listen to The Experience with Laferne Cusack, Sundays, 5 to 6 a.m. ESPN LA 710. What's one of the most prevalent and deadly cancers in the United States? If you guessed colorectal cancer, you'd be right. Colorectal cancer is the fourth most commonly diagnosed cancers and is the second leading cause of cancer death in men and women combined in this country. It's expected to be the cause of about 51,000 deaths this year, according to the American Cancer Society. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, so now is the right time to talk about it to talk about this life-threatening disease. The key to detecting colorectal cancer early, according to the American Cancer Society, is when colorectal cancer is localized before it has spread. The five-year relative survival rate is about 90%. When the cancer progresses and spreads outside of the colon or rectum, survival rates are much lower. In a minute, we're going to be talking with Dr. Darush Lavi. He's an internal medicine physician located in Costa Mesa with Monarch Healthcare. And he's going to be here to share some very important and timely information about colorectal cancer. I'm Laferne Cusack. This is ESPN LA. ESPN LA 710. Welcome to ESPN. I'm Laferne Cusack. Thank you so much for joining me. Today we're talking with Dr. Darush Lavi. He internal medicine physician from Monarch Healthcare. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lavi. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So tell me about your background. You are in Costa Mesa, but you grew up in Huntington Beach, right? That's correct. I, uh, uh, originally from uh, Iran, I uh, moved here when I was seven years old and uh, settled in Huntington Beach and uh, uh, went to high school at Edison High School in Huntington Beach. Subsequently, did my undergraduate studies at UC Irvine. I studied biological sciences. And uh, after that, I went to medical school at UC Irvine and subsequently did a three-year residency in internal medicine at UC Irvine. So I was at UCI for quite a number of years, 11 years after high school. And uh, subsequent to that, I I was a hospitalist physician where I worked in the hospital for about four years. And then after that, around 2006, I started my private practice in Costa Mesa and have been in private practice since. Wow, what a journey. Yeah. How how was that coming from my Iran coming to Huntington Beach? How was yeah. that? <laughs> very different, very different. Uh, learning the language of English and becoming proficient at it was uh, difficult. Uh, took English as a second language, and but uh, acclimated well, you know, um, and uh, just... Uh, picked up the culture and consider myself a true American, you know. Yeah, and you surf. <laughs> I, I assume you're in Huntington Beach, you surf. <laughs> <laughs> I don't surf, but yeah, I went to the beach a lot, so <laughs> I love the beach there, so. Yeah, so tell me about UC, UC Irvine. Like, I, I have a couple friends that went there and loved the experience. What was it for you? Yeah, you know, when I went, uh, when I started my um, uh, undergraduate studies, uh, at UCI. It was actually back in 1990. Um, UCI was developing. I mean, we had, had a lot of land, but not a lot of buildings and 
um, not a lot of schools. Uh, for example, the engineering uh, uh, division was just developing, only had three different branches of engineering. The biology program was very good. And over the years, it just got stronger and stronger in terms of research and research funds. And uh, the campus has now developed so much since the days I went. The other day, I was there just taking a tour. And, you know, every time you go there, you see a new building coming up. Mm -hmm. And uh, they do a lot of research. And the uh, professors and um, the instructors are very good in in their uh, abilities to teach. And the medical school as well, you know, very, very good institution of teaching and research. We actually, uh, in medical school, do a part of our program at the VA hospital in uh, Long Beach, which is affiliated with UC Irvine. And that was also a very good experience to work with the veterans and um, the instructors and attendings at the VA hospital were phenomenal. And and they taught me a lot. And, you know, of course, you know, medicine is a practice and you continue uh, trying to learn uh, the new inventions and discoveries all the time. So, you know, you become a lifelong student. And right. I think I learned that a lot from, you know, both my undergraduate days and medical school days at UC Irvine. So tell tell us about your medical days and how you gravitated to internal medicine. Oh, yes. Um, you know, I was interested in a lot of different aspects of medicine when I did my rotations. The way it works is, you know, when you go to medical school, the first two years are didactic, didactic lectures where you're learning, you know, biology, physiology, biochemistry, pathology, which is the study of disease and so forth. And then the third and fourth year of medical school entails rotating through different branches of medicine, different specialties such as pediatrics and gynecology, psychiatry, internal medicine. And, you know, uh, what I liked about internal medicine it was uh, so broad and encompassed um, so many different aspects of medicine. Uh, and then, of course, you know, people who go on to study internal medicine and uh, get their degree uh, in internal medicine, which is about three years of post-medical school training, decide to go into subspecialties of internal medicine, such as cardiology or gastroenterology, endocrinology, which are additional two to three years. But after the three years of internal medicine, I was very satisfied just staying with internal medicine because you know, every day in my practice, I see so many different signs and symptoms and ailments coming in, and it keeps you on your toes because you have to know a lot about a broad range of medicine, which to me was more intriguing than knowing a, a lot of a lot of stuff about just one area or two areas of medicine. So that was what it was so fascinating for me, and still is. So you're an overachiever, basically. <laughs> yeah, most internists are, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because to me, it sounds like, I mean, if you specialize in one thing instead of a broad range, it would, it sounds a bit overwhelming. That's correct. In the old days, we had um, a practice of medicine called general practice, which was similar. Uh, but the, the training for general practice was not very detailed. I mean, after medical school, uh, general practitioners did about one year of rotating uh, an internship, as you would call it, and then going out in the in the uh, in the field and practicing. But internal medicine is actually you get a board certification after you do your three years and pass an exam because uh, they want to make sure you're acclimated to all these different disease processes that um, can can present themselves. So. Um, you know, uh, we don't see 
much general practitioners anymore. So you see either internal medicine or family medicine. Uh, they're very similar, but family medicine is more uh, broader to, to some extent. It entails gynecology and also seeing pediatrics. Mm-hmm. Internal medicine is only adult medicine, but a little more complex and also a lot of hospital-based uh, work as well. Very interesting. Okay. And so so when you say internal medicine, what what do your clients or your patients come to you for the most? Or what kind of trends do you see nowadays? That's a very good question. Um, like I said, because of the nature of this practice, you see everything. <laughs> everything under the sun can come through. But, but the most common things are the most common diseases, you know, uh, cardiac diseases, um, heart disease and high blood pressure, hypertension, uh, diabetes, uh, thyroid problems whether it's a low-functioning thyroid or a uh, hyper-functioning or more functioning than usual thyroid. Um, we see a lot of high cholesterol uh, patients coming in, um, obesity, those different, uh, but those are the top ones. But like I said, uh, you know, with internal medicine, I see a wide range of diseases every single day. I mm-hmm. see about 30 patients a day, and, and there's various different diseases that are diagnosed anywhere from heart disease to diabetes to thyroid problems to cancers and uh, blood disorders and anemias and so forth. Now, Dr. Lavi, you sound like you're very personable. How do you manage taking care of over 30 people a day and still staying up and positive? How do you take care of yourself? (laughs) That's that's a good comment and question. Yeah, I think that... um, I am very personable. You know, I, I, I like to get information. Uh, I'm very social in my skills and trying to talk to people. And I think that's one of the aspects of being a better physician is to try to engage with your patients in terms of trying to get a good history. And um, because, you know, diagnosis entails getting a good history, which entails a good conversation. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be a one-way conversation. A doctor shouldn't be talking most of the time. It should be the patient talking most of the time, which is challenging in this day and age where, you know, we're limited in time. Mm-hmm. We have to see patients quick and so forth. But I think one, one aspect of uh, what my patients tell me that they're very, uh, they're, they're very thankful for is that I spend time kind of discussing things in layman terms the basic anatomy and physiology of diseases by using anatomical charts and kind of showing them what's happening uh, with an illness or symptom. And they tell me that, you know, coming to see me is like going to biology school you know, <laughs> sometimes because, uh, you know, I, I explain things. And I think that, you know, the better a physician explains yes. an underlying problem to a patient, the better the outcome because the patient then learns that um, that disease process right. and they're, better able to treat it. You exactly. Know, so. Because how are you supposed to go forward if you don't have all the full information? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I yeah. remember my parents going in to the doctor and they came out and I'm like, well, what did they say? And my mom was like, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what they meant by, you know, right. it was like, oh my goodness, you know, like, did you ask questions? And sometimes people don't know what type of questions to ask. Yes, exactly. And, you know, of course, there's fear involved and anxiety when, you know, some of these diagnoses are um, 
very traumatic to some patients. So, you know, you need to spend more time explaining things and talking about prognosis and so forth. But I see that all the time. You know, I've seen patients coming into my practice that were seen by other healthcare providers who were really good providers, but one of the faults was that not enough time was spent explaining to the patient what's going on. So, you know, the patient would come in in a kind of like not understanding what's going on, going from doctor to doctor, and that creates more anxiety because mm-hmm. uncertainty creates anxiety if you're not certain about what things are happening. Therefore, I think it's really important to take time and explain things um uh, in simple terminology, because, you know, uh, I tell my patients, medicine is not uh, rocket science. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not something that is not understandable, and these days we have access to, you know, WebMD and things like that. Uh, so I think that it's, it should be explained by physician, and the patient should ask all the questions they have. I, I also communicate with email if my patients, once they leave my office, I tell them, look, if you have a question, because a lot of times you see your doctor and then you get into your car and you're like, oh, I forgot to ask this particular question. What am I going to do? And then you call the office staff and there's a wait period and they say, I'm sorry, the doctor is busy. So I encourage my patients. I say, you know, if something comes up on your way home or tonight, you email me and ask me that question and I'll get back to you because I think it's really important to have a communication, a good establish communication network with your patients. Yes, absolutely. Well, we all know that March is colorectal cancer awareness month. That's correct. That's correct. And we say March, but I think it's a a year-round type of awareness as well. Absolutely. Dr. Lavi, can you talk about how you can lower your risk of colorectal cancer? Uh, lowering the risk entails, you know, um, exercise, um, keeping a regular exercise schedule by getting good cardiovascular exercise about five days a week or so, about 30 minutes a day. Uh, also, uh, eating lots of fruits and vegetables, high-fiber foods because, you know, they help things pass through the intestinal system quicker. Um also, if someone is a smoker, they should quit because there's associations with uh, colon cancer and tobacco use, keeping alcohol to moderation, not uh, using it as excessively. Um, so those are the kind of the lifestyle um, changes that one can make. Also, consuming less red meat, believe it or not, because there is an association with really high fatty foods, processed foods. These are foods that are typically... Um, stored with nitrates and sodium to keep keep their shelf lives longer. For example, sausages, salamis, and these things, these have nitrates in them, and they're harder to digest and difficult on the GI system and have been associated with gastrointestinal cancers and colon cancer. So mm-hmm. minimizing red meat. I usually tell my patients maybe have one day uh, a week where you're having red meat and that's it, and it should be like lean, not fatty meat. And try to eat uh, fish three days out of the week and uh, turkey and chicken the other days and keep one day vegetarian if you can, you know. So uh, that that entails that sort of the dietary changes right. and the lifestyle changes. And then, of course, screening is really important because, you know, as much as we've advanced in medicine, uh, treatment is not as good as prevention. Uh, preventing a disease 
is by far the better way of dealing with it rather than treating it, especially the cancers. Mm-hmm. Um, and colon cancer is so preventable if people do the appropriate screening, but only, unfortunately, about 60% of Americans do the proper screening for colon cancer. And you're supposed to start that screening at 40, am I correct? Uh, it's actually at age 50 oh. for someone who's, uh, yeah, someone who's average risk, which means they don't have any family history of colon cancer. They start the screening at age 50. If there is family history, um, especially in a first-degree relative, like let's say it was a parent or a sibling or a child, then um, it generally starts 10 years earlier from the time that the family member was affected. So let's say a family member developed colon cancer at the age of 45, then um, the other family member should get screened at the age of 35. Uh, reason being it takes about 10 years for a uh, polyp uh, to turn into cancer. So mm-hmm. that's, that's a recommendation if somebody has a family history. If somebody does not have a family history of colon cancer, then the screening starts at age 50. Mm, okay. And as the, according to the American Cancer Society, 51,000 deaths a year happen because of colorectal cancer. Can you talk about why m- most colon cancers develop first as polyps? Yes. Well, um, the polyps are uh, the growths that are unusual growths in the colon that they shouldn't be there. You know, these are... Uh, erratic cells that start growing. And not all polyps turn into cancer. There are polyps that are just excess tissue um, that, you know, basically remain the same size and don't turn into cancer. But some polyps, we usually call those tubular adenomas uh, or serrated adenomas, these transform or can transform into cancers. Uh, Mutations happen where these cells then start replicating erratically and then uh, transform themselves from a benign polyp into a tumor that then starts invading the layers of the colon and then starts spreading to other parts of the body. And that's when someone is diagnosed with colon cancer. I tell my patients, you know, they tell me like, what are polyps? I tell them like, you know, you know, you ever go out in the lawn and you see these mushrooms growing and and Mm -hmm. there shouldn't be growing there, these poisonous mushrooms in in your front lawn. That's how polyps are. These are excess tissue growing in the colon that shouldn't be growing there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's why colonoscopies are so important because when you start doing a colonoscopy, a gastroenterologist looks inside the colon after it it has been cleansed thoroughly. Mm -hmm. And uh, whatever polyp they see, they remove, either by snipping it off or cautery, which is basically burning that region off. And then they send the tissue, this small polyp, to uh, the pathologist to see if they were ever going to turn into cancer or not. If, if, so, if we find that a polyp was going to turn into cancer, those are the tubular adenomas, for example, mm-hmm. then you tell the individual you should come back in about five years to do another colonoscopy. Why if five we, years? Why not? The question is, why not one year, you mean? or? or yeah, why is it five years and not, yeah, maybe one or yeah, two? Yeah, because, again, you know, coming back in a year probably is not going to be really informative because these polyps take time to grow. And, oh. you know, it takes 10 years for a polyp, if it's going to become cancer, to become cancerous. So we pick five because 
you know, you, you get a polyp in their mid-stage mm-hmm. and then you can remove them. So if you go back, there are times that, you know, we tell patients come back in a year or six months. Those are in, those are in situations where you find multiple polyps oh, okay. in an individual and you're, you, you just want to make sure that you didn't miss a polyp when you were looking in there or there's, you know, these are, t- there are tiny polyps sometimes in two or three millimeters that sometimes can get missed. And so you tell that individual, uh, come back in a year or two years. It's all up to the discretion of the, uh, specialist, the gastroenterologist that's doing the procedure to see if they got a good look, if they make sure they didn't miss mm-hmm. any small lesions, you know, and then the recommendations follow based on that colonoscopy. Okay. So w- when you say you might miss something, so they can be really tiny or really small? Yeah, it's very rare. Most gastroenterologists are very good at picking these things up, but uh, very rarely you have a very tiny uh, polyp or what's called a serrated adenoma. These are polyps that are flat polyps because most polyps are uh, tubular adenomas, which are they have a stock to them just like as I mentioned, like a mushroom sticking out of a lawn. But some polyps are flat. We call those serrated adenomas. Those are harder to pick up sometimes, and uh, and uh, so they have to be very diligent into looking at the colon and making sure that, you know, because the flat polyps can kind of hide with the regular regular parts of the colon, oh, you know. So. Dr. Lavi, can you tell us, I know you talked about, you know, smoking and alcohol and eating the meat. Why would, as a wine drinker, (laughs) why why does alcohol contribute to colon cancer? Well, you know, excess amounts cause, uh, you know, genetic damage, DNA damage, just like smoking does. Mm-hmm. Uh, they oxidize. It's an oxidizer. You know, to me, smoking is equivalent to radiation, basically. Wow. So, um, you know, the, the, the oxidation process is not good for our cells. And um, if they form these free radicals, these different types of constituents that then cause our genetic material to behave differently. Uh, they damage a gene. Because, you know, Cells have a lifespan, and we, our body kind of controls the lifespan of these cells. But once there's genetic mutations, these cells start acting erratically and multiplying without end. You know, they don't, they don't stop, and that's what turns into a cancerous tissue or tumor because uh, that regulation to stop growing goes away. So things just start growing and growing and growing. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, um, smoking and alcohol... In uh, alcohol in moderation is okay, but excessive amounts will trigger these things. Smoking. What what is an excessive amount of alcohol? Yeah. For moderation, we mean you know generally not to exceed two glasses, um, two two drinks for a man and one drink for a woman. And and generally, obviously, there's different contents of the alcohol contents of various different drinks vary. So how do you define that? Well. You know, an ounce and a half of hard liquor is considered a drink. Uh, you know, um, four ounces of wine is considered a drink. Twelve ounces of beer is considered one drink based on their alcohol content. So that's the way to kind of gauge and not to exceed that amount um, in any given day. Got it. So basically, I need to just give up alcohol. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so let's let's talk about men versus w- women when it comes to uh, colon cancers. Is it is it most common in men than in women? Well, I mean, if you look at nationally, uh, uh, in terms of cancer deaths, colon cancer, unfortunately, is the second most common cause of cancer death in the United States in both men and women, number one being lung cancer, number two being uh, colon cancer. But the incidence of colon cancer is a little bit higher in men than women probably about 25% more. Um, we don't really know the reason for that. Why, why is it uh, more common in men than women? But uh, it might be hormonal. There are certain things that are different with our hormones that may trigger you know, uh, cancer cells. Uh, mm-hmm. That has not been established why men are more prone to colon cancer than women. But overall, you know, it is the second most common cause of cancer death. And Therefore, screening should be for both men and women starting at age 50. And you talk about the gastrointestinal doctor doing the screenings. Uh, so how would you come, how would you fit into this? You would schedule or, or yeah. yeah? That's a good question. So, um, you know, uh, for my patients that are at the right age or if they have a family history of colon cancer, your primary care physician, which would be someone like me, you know, in the specialty of internal medicine or family medicine, then subsequently refers you to a gastroenterologist. And uh, the gastroenterologist usually meets with the patient to go over their history and so forth, and then uh, sets a date for the colonoscopy. Uh, and then there's a preparation that it entails. The day before, the patient needs to remain on a clear liquid diet, and then there's various different solutions that um, the gastroenterologist may choose from that cause a, you know, cleansing of the bowel. And usually uh, the, the patient uh, uh, takes the solutions, kind of like having an osmotic solution like Gatorade. Mm-hmm. It could taste salty at times. But the newer solutions have flavors of lemon and orange, so they're not as bad as the old days. So mm-hmm. they're more tolerable. And, uh, you know, this causes a diarrhea and a cleansing uh, where the, the bowel is clean enough so that um, the next day a person, a family member, usually takes the patient to the endoscopy suite, which is a procedure room, and then they give a little bit of light anesthesia. It's not general anesthesia like surgery, but it's what we call conscious sedation, uh, kind of like being in a twilight. You know, the, the patients are arousable, but they're not they're not 100% under general anesthesia, mm-hmm. but they're comfortable so that they don't feel any pain during this procedure. And then an endoscope, a uh, colonoscope is introduced from the rectum, and then the gastroenterologist goes all the way around the colon looking for, looking at different angles and uh, looking for any polyps and whatever they see, they remove. So actually, you know, there's a lot of anxieties in some patients about colonoscopies, but most of the time when my patients come back and they tell me, "Ah, that was so easy, you know, I mean, what, what, I don't know why I put it off, for example, you know, I didn't even feel anything, you know. Right, right. Uh, Are there other types of screenings or tests that we can do besides that? There are, yes. Um, You know, uh, there is a... uh, Fecal immunostain uh, for for blood. Uh, we used to call it fecal occult blood because uh, some of these colon cancers um, cause slow blood loss, 
that's not seen by the patient. You know, you don't see it in your stool. You don't see fresh blood, but there's microscopic blood. Mm-hmm. And these uh, fecal occult blood tests detect to see if there's any blood in the stool. So that what that entails is, you know, uh, for example, I would order a fecal occult blood test. The patient would go to the lab, pick up a kit, and then take that kit home. And then the next time they have a bowel movement, they would put a sample on this kit. Um, in the past, they had to actually put a part of the stool on the kit. Now it's actually the, the, the toilet water where the stool is mixed in uh, by just, they, they, there's a little brush in there, by putting that water onto the card and sending it to the lab. The lab is then able to do some special staining to see if, if there's evidence of microscopic blood. And if there is, there could be a polyp or a tumor that's uh, causing the bleeding, which definitely then the patient should proceed with a colonoscopy. But the problem with the the fecal immune uh, stain is that it's not as accurate as colonoscopy. Colonoscopy mm-hmm. is the gold standard. Uh, there are times where, you know, someone has um, a pre-malignant polyp that's not bleeding, so those don't get picked up. So the sensitivity of the test, obviously, is not as good as a colonoscopy. And then there's another test, which is called a Cologuard test, and that test is a little better than that looking for blood. The Cologuard test actually looks for genetic material in the stool because these polyps will start shedding atypical cells, and this test is able to pick up, you know, uh, abnormal cells and indicate if someone has one of those pre-malignant polyps. So the sensitivity of the Cologuard approach is 90%. That's the chance of detecting a uh, cancer or pre-malignant polyp. But uh, for the blood, blood, it's not as accurate. It's Mm -hmm. it's lower. But the gold standard is really a colonoscopy where a doctor is actually seeing the entire colon. The other thing about these tests is if they're positive, then you have to do a colonoscopy anyway. So my way of thinking about it is, why not just go do the colonoscopy? You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. right. It's quick. It's easy. It's yes. not painful. Uh, yeah. This is ESPN LA. I'm Fern Cusack talking with Dr. Darush Lavi. He's an internal medicine physician at uh, Costa Mesa, in Costa Mesa, with Monarch Healthcare. So now, if you have a patient that actually test positive for colon cancer, what are the next steps? Yeah, so uh, occasionally uh, when we do see a, because uh, most of the time when we're doing these colonoscopies, when my colleagues do them, uh, fortunately we're finding, you know, polyps that are removed in time and they're not overt cancers. But occasionally you see a polyp that's on the way to becoming a tumor or has actually turned into into a tumor. So in those situations, um we do a staging where uh, we do a CAT scan of the entire body to see uh, if this tumor has um, invaded any other um, organs or if it's involved into the lymph nodes. Um, and we kind of get an idea of how extensive the cancer is. And uh, if somebody has a localized uh, colon cancer, uh, that means it's only in that region of the colon that hasn't really spread to any other organ then we send that patient to the um, colorectal surgeon or a general surgeon that takes that segment of the colon out. And then it's at that time of surgery where you really truly know the the staging because sometimes even 
uh, good scans like CT scans don't pick up the extent of cancer. So, you know, you remove the tumor with regional lymph nodes. These are lymph nodes in the region of the tumor because cancer spreads in the body through lymph nodes. These are nodes, lymph nodes are um, elements of our immune system where cells sit and are ready to fight infection and um, also cancers and so forth. So when, when cancer starts metastasizing, spreading, they usually spread through the bloodstream and the lymph nodes. So mm. uh, when a doctor removes a tumor, they usually take samples of regional lymph nodes. Those are lymph nodes around the tumor uh, to see if the, the tumor has invaded those lymph nodes. If it has, then the cancer is more extensive and perhaps may have spread to other uh, regions of the body. And so those those cancers need to be treated with usually chemotherapy and so forth because uh, they they have involved other tissues. Um, occasionally we remove a cancer and fortunately it's only localized to the bowel, which we call the mucosa. It has not spread to the lymph nodes. And the prognosis is really good for those individuals. Probably about 90% is the prognosis oh, that good. they'll survive beyond five years. Um, it's kind of like a stage one colon cancer. So, you know, uh, early cancers can be very treatable as well. That's why it's so important to, you know, uh, do the screening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I, you know, I tell my patients it's also very good to do your annual physicals with your physician. Right. Uh, it's not only about colonoscopy because, you know, uh, we're seeing more cancers, more colon cancers in younger individuals oh, now. Wow. Um, and we don't know why that's happening, but the data shows that more younger people are being diagnosed with colon cancer. And a lot of those colon cancers that younger individuals are being diagnosed with are what we call right-sided colon cancer. That means they're on the right side of the colon. And those particular tumors usually manifest themselves with uh, anemia, iron deficiency anemia. Oh, wow. So, and iron deficiency anemia is something that gets picked up on your routine blood work for your physical. So that's why I tell my patients, you know, it's very important to see your doctor once a year at least. Do your physical, do your blood test, because even without any symptoms, you know, we start seeing these changes that can then lead us to detect the cancer early on, you know. Now, I know you talked about getting the nutrition and the fiber from foods. Correct. Uh, so what? how do you feel about, you know, a, a vitamin supplement to help with the iron and getting all of that? as well as a back, I guess you say a backup, Uh, I say backup. (laughs) (laughs) My view on vitamins is that if somebody has a well-balanced diet, um, such as, um, you know, they're having three or four servings of fruits and vegetables per day, then they get the adequate amount of vitamin they need. I don't think there's any need for additional multivitamins. When you look at older individuals, um, What's yeah, older? Is that over? Is that over forty? <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a tough definition. But to me, I'm looking at you know sixty five and over. Oh. Um, you know, multivitamins, you know, are maybe a good idea for older individuals because you know they have all the essential vitamins, and older individuals may not be having a well balanced diet. But I think like if you keep a well balanced diet having fruits and vegetables, then that's as good as, or if, if it's even better than a multivitamin, you know. Now, so 
that's not to say that I don't recommend vitamins to my patients. Like I check certain vitamin levels if I suspect somebody is anemic. They might have a B12 deficiency. They might have iron deficiency, which is very common in menstruating uh, females. Uh, so I check those on a blood test, and then I can tell my patients, yeah, you know, you need this much amount of iron in your daily supplements. If if someone's B12 deficient, I'll say, you know, let's say somebody is uh, vegan or vegetarian, they tend to be vitamin B12 deficient. Oh. So those individuals, I'll check a B12 level in their blood, and then I'll tell them, you know, you need this much of vitamin B12 on a daily basis. What does vitamin B12 do? Vitamin B12 is really good for nerve function. Uh, it, it, it helps as a cofactor for how signal, you know, nerves signal and to some extent provides energy for us. So uh, a lot of times people who are deficient in B12, um, they can have numbness and tingling, what we call neuropathy, um, uh, burning sensations, things nerve-related. So when then they supplement with B12, those sensations go away. Also, B12 deficiency can cause anemia too because B12 is involved in the red blood cell formation too. So if, if somebody's deficient in B12, they can get anemic as well. So those are the main main functions. It's also very, uh, as I mentioned, nerve functions, also very important for neurons in the, in the brain. So individuals who are B12 deficient may have memory problems and cognition and concentration problems. Oh, okay. And you know, you know those shots that people get to, like you could go into urgent care and get a B, yeah B twelve shot. Yeah, oh, okay. that's very common that's for energy. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was for yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think, like I said, um, you know, those effects. I, I have some patients coming in and say, Doctor Lavi, I want a B twelve shot for my energy and <laughs> right. so forth. You know, like I, you know, as I mentioned, if if they're deficient, I'm uh, I'm. I'm more into evidence-based medicine. So I would check a blood level and see if that person is really deficient in them. Then I would consider B12 injection. But, you know, a lot of times there's a placebo effect too, right? I mean, somebody right. gets a B12 injection and they feel like, oh, this shot is going to make me... I could tackle the world! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so some of it could be placebo. But I'm an advocate of measuring things and then seeing if you're truly deficient. And then, of course, you replace it if you're deficient, you know. Yeah. Dr. Lavi, I saw a headline the other day. I didn't click into it, but I saw a headline that said uh, the effects of being vitamin D deficient. There are. Correct. Okay. So what would happen if you are vitamin D? Vitamin D, uh, D as in David, correct? Correct. That's, yeah. Yeah. You know, vitamin D uh, kind of became a fad in medicine for the last three or four years. Oh, because, really? Yes. I mean, you commonly see everybody's prescribing vitamin D and uh, <laughs> everybody's checking vitamin D level. And, and these are expensive tests. It's about 80 and $90 to check a vitamin D level. So uh, I think that, you know, vitamin D is essential for older individuals who are, uh, you know, postmenopausal, for example, in women who are at risk for osteoporosis because vitamin D uh, is very involved in bone health and muscle health. Um, but in the past, we thought that maybe vitamin D uh, plays a big role in the immune system and the higher your vitamin D levels, the better. But a, a recent research that came out didn't show vitamin D to be that beneficial in replacement for younger individuals again, you know. Um, so they, they looked at a pool of uh, patients that were taking high doses of vitamin D and then placebo uh, 
and then compared and there was no significant difference. So, uh, however, uh, I do check vitamin D levels again in patients, my senior patients, uh, those who are osteoporotic, for example, uh, and I'll check a level and if they're low, then I'll tell them to supplement vitamin D, sometimes give them prescription strength vitamin D. But for younger individuals, like a 20-year-old uh, person, Checking the vitamin D level, I don't think it's that beneficial. And vitamin D really comes mostly from sunlight. Yeah, um, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. I was like, can't we just go out in the sun yeah. about it? Surprisingly, it seems like we're spending more time indoors, you know, yeah. because uh, on the patients that I check vitamin D levels are, most of them, I would say close to 8 out of 10 or 9 out of 10 even, are low in vitamin D. It's just uh, probably because we're spending more time indoors and mm-hmm you know, uh, not getting an adequate amount of vitamin D from from sunlight. Uh, not a lot of foods have vitamin D. Sometimes seafood has vitamin D and so forth, but it comes principally from sunlight. But like I said, a vitamin D level should be checked in those uh, the, the women who are uh, menopausal or perimenopausal, which means around the time of menopause, because they're at risk for osteoporosis, and vitamin D supplementation will help. Uh, senior patients, like... 65 and over, I check vitamin D level because low levels are associated with poor balance and, you know, um, by replacing vitamin D, the balance and proprioception, as we call it, in older individuals improves. So, but like I said, it has to be tailored to the patient. It shouldn't be a general recommendation for everyone to go and do, do a vitamin D level, you know. Right, right. Now, uh, again, March is colorectal cancer awareness month. Correct. Uh, and you also mentioned exercise can lower your risk of, uh, cancer, colorectal cancer. Correct. What type of exercise are you talking about? And yeah, the exercise that has been shown to lower the risk of colorectal cancer is cardiovascular exercise that, that raises your heart rate to what we call a maximum heart rate for an individual. And uh, the recommendations by the CDC, that's the Centers for Disease Control, is for every one of us to get 150 minutes of cardiovascular exercise per week. So how do you come out that? I mean, how do you calculate that? Because we're so busy these days. How do you fit 150 minutes in per week? So they did another study where they said, do you have to spread this 150 minutes over five days? Or could you do like three days of 150 minutes. It doesn't make a difference. As long as you get 150 minutes in of cardiovascular exercise per week, you do lower your risk, most importantly, of cardiovascular disease, but also, in this case, colon cancer as well. Mm -hmm. So we could just basically walk for 20 minutes a day or do yoga? Yeah, it has to be something that uh, elevates the heart rate. You know, it would be more brisk walking, Mm -hmm. uh, swimming, uh, stationary bike, um, things that would uh, kind of elevate the heart rate. Yoga is a great great exercise. It's more it's, uh, kind of a weight and balancing exercise. Um, perhaps it's more weight training. Uh, but cardio entails things like tennis, running, swimming, uh, basketball, brisk walking, um, things that elevate the heart rate that actually you feel like your heart rate is raised. So what I do for my patients is 
you know, if they're healthy and they don't have any heart issues, obviously if they have heart issues, we first have to make sure their heart will be able to withstand cardiovascular exercise. Mm. But if they're healthy and they don't have any heart issues, then I calculate a maximum heart rate for them. So uh, that entails a formula that I put based on their age and come out at a particular heart rate that they need to achieve, let's say 140 beats per minute. And then they have to try to achieve that for 30 minutes a day for five days a week, that kind of thing. But your doctor can discuss what's a healthy heart rate uh, to be achieved during exercise uh, with you mm-hmm. and uh, then come up with a what, an exercise prescription. Right. Okay. Got that. And I know you also mentioned a lot of people coming into your office with maybe cholesterol, high cholesterol levels or Correct. diabetes. Um, have you seen a, a trend go down? Like, are more people eating healthier nowadays, you know, with, you know, with whole foods, we have more fresh fruits and vegetables and more stores coming into all of our neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we see it a lot, but unfortunately the data is quite the opposite. I mean, the incidence of obesity is increasing. If you look at uh, the United States, um, you know, two out of three people are either obese or overweight. Um, so, you know, out of every third person, if you look at three people, two out of three statistically are either overweight or obese. So unfortunately, yes, uh, the, the incidence of obesity is increasing. Now we do see a lot of commercials and a lot of good news about trying to eat healthy, but the, the sad truth is that a lot of people are not doing that. And I think that people are, involved still eating fast foods and, you know, rushing for work and just grabbing whatever, you know, because eating healthy entails time. That's my view of looking at it. You know, you have to pick and choose what you want to eat. You have to be slow in what you want to eat. You have to spend time, be more mindful of what you're eating. And when you're short of time and you have all these deadlines to meet and you have to be on the run, that's when you start eating the unhealthy foods like donuts and and pizza and things like that. So I think that you're right in about sort of an awareness that now is coming out that we have to be aware of these these foods and we got good good uh, stores like Whole Foods and so forth. But but the problem is the statistics don't show it, you know. Yeah. But when you look at parts of Europe, like for example, the Mediterranean diet is a diet that has shown that it extends life expectancy and people that reside in the region of the Mediterranean, that's like the south of Italy, parts of Greece, Sardinia, they, they tend to have the highest life expectancy because of you know, the diets they're consuming and the activities they're doing. Oh. That's, that's the type of lifestyle we have to, we have to try to uh, use as our role model. Now, but, you say Mediterranean, so is that more like salads? and? Yeah, so the typical Mediterranean diet is, uh, involves uh, more seafood, uh, not shellfish, but seafood, because shellfish tends to have high cholesterol. But uh, you we're talking about fresh fishes, uh, trout, salmon, halibut, a lot of vegetables and fruits, as you mentioned. Um, and, and, you know, in Europe, as you mentioned, in Europe, a little bit of wine, moderation, uh, is okay over there because, you know, they have that. <laughs> I think the problem we have in the U.S. sometimes is uh, moderation goes out of hand and becomes excessive. Right. So, uh, and then also the lifestyle in the, in the region of the Mediterranean is less fast-paced, 
people do a lot of walking. You know, um, whenever I go to Europe, I, I count my steps, and I'm over eighteen, nineteen thousand steps a day when yes. I'm over there because we're, you know, you're doing most of your daily chores walking around in Europe, exactly. whereas whereas uh, in the U.S. we need to sit in a car, you know, so right. we're not getting the activity that our body should be getting, you know. Yeah, and that's one thing, like in Los Angeles, you know, we're in our cars all the time, and then, like, I came from uh, Chicago. I, well, I moved here from Chicago. Oh. In Chicago, we're always walking. We're walking to the train station, and yeah. then from the train station, we walk, you know, to our jobs or whatever. But we're always, I was always walking. But here, it's, it feels so sedentary, like, and Absolutely. then... It, and then you have, if you're in the entertainment industry, it's really fast-paced and uh, stressful. Not saying that compared to other, you know, uh, right. industries, but y- I've been seeing a lot of people, like in their 40s, you know, having heart conditions from yeah. stress and not eating well. And I'm Absolutely. like, oh my goodness, all my friends are getting sick. And yeah, yeah, it's uh, unfortunately. It's happening a lot, and I see that every day in, in uh, quite a bit of my patients, too. Unfortunately, you know, uh, it is important. You know, don't get me wrong. Our our occupation is what makes us, and it, it is important. I know for me, medicine is one of my top priorities, but I think the number one priority should be your body. That, that should be because, you know, without health, everything goes away, unfortunately. Yeah. So I think that mindfulness, Spending time thinking about what you're consuming, it has to go through your digestive system. You know, sodium is a key thing that you want to stay on a low-sodium diet because sodium, again, associated with some stomach cancers and high blood pressure, fluid retention, all these things. And the foods that are available in the fast food industry are highly packed with sodium, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, that's, you know, Eating on the run mm-hmm. is convenient, but it's not good for the body, you know. What about sushi? Sushi, the, you know, the soy sauce in sushi, uh, mm-hmm. it has a lot of salt. But now, you know, you can get a low-salt soy sauce. But sushi itself is fine because you're consuming the the, uh, the fishes and stuff yeah. that, that have been shown to be beneficial. But again, you got to be careful, make sure there's no food poisoning involved because sometimes, you know, fish, um, you're more prone to food poisoning with fish because of the bacteria, different bacteria that can grow if it's not very fresh. So, Yes, look out for that. Uh, Dr. Lavi, so talk about a little bit about diabetes, if you can, and the different types and how you, as an internal doctor, how you, internal medicine doctor, help your clients with that? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the other incidence of a disease that we're seeing now more, more and more is type 2 diabetes. So there's various forms of diabetes, but for the most importantly, there's type 1 and type 2. Type 1 is a type of diabetes that's related to the immune system, usually presents itself uh, in younger individuals, although older individuals can also present with type 1 diabetes. But usually you see type 1 manifesting itself in teenagers and young adults. And what that, in that situation, what happens is our body attacks our pancreas, 
which is uh, the organ that releases insulin for regulation of blood sugar. Mm-hmm. So from day one, in individuals with type 1, the pancreas is not working anymore. And uh, so they need to go on insulin shots to be able to function normally. But the predominant type of diabetes is type 2. And type 2 diabetes is not that the pancreas is not making any insulin. It is, but it's not making enough insulin for the amount of carbohydrates that are coming into the body. Mm-hmm. And type 2 diabetes is closely associated with obesity um, because, you know, obese people are consuming large amounts of carbs and, you know, the insulin secretion, the production of insulin by the pancreas is not enough. Type 2 diabetes is linked, as most diseases are, genetically. So if you have a parent with type 2 diabetes, you have a higher chance of having type 2 diabetes. But it's also environmental through what type of diets you're consuming. Because I tell my patients uh, when I diagnose a particular disease and they tell me why did this happen, I tell them that disease is usually a combination of our genetic predisposition. We have those genes. Uh, inherited from our parents and grandparents. And then also we do certain things or there's environmental triggers that turn those genes on. So in, in, the, in the case of type 2 diabetes, someone is prone to type 2 diabetes because one of their parents, let's say, had type 2 or grandparent, and then they're consuming heavy amounts of carbs and turning these genes on and then the type 2 diabetes um, is diagnosed in that individual. But, you know, I'm diagnosing a lot of type 2 diabetes, a lot of pre-diabetes. Those people are on the verge of diabetes, uh, all linked to poor diet and lack of exercise and obesity. Yes, and I I got it. I need to cut down on, well, I need to stop drinking yeah. and more exercise. You know, I have. A, I was talking to a colleague and I was like, you know what? I have a 60-year-old son. I want to be here for him. Absolutely. You know? That's very important. All right, Dr. Lavi, if you could give us the top tips of how we can lower our risk of colorectal cancer. Yeah, so... Um To lower the risk of the colorectal cancer, uh, again, lifestyle is a big uh, factor. Eating more fruits and vegetables, keeping active, doing the cardiovascular exercise about 150 minutes a week. Uh, Those are essential. Uh, High-fiber diets, seeing your doctor regularly for checkups, starting the colonoscopy at age 50 uh, and at a younger age if there's family history. And then, of course, an annual physical with your with your physician, because as I mentioned, uh, a lot of diseases, a lot of ailments can be discovered by, you know, doing a physical exam and having the routine blood test, things that have not yet manifested with symptoms, but are detected on on uh, blood tests. Well, thank you so much. This has been so enlightening, and I'm sure our listeners uh, feel the same. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Dr. Darush Alavi, internal medicine physician with Monarch Healthcare. Uh, if we want to get a hold of you or find out more about you, Dr. Alavi, how can we do that? Uh, yes, uh, you can. anyone can call my office or send me an email if they have any questions. And uh, um, my office number uh, is 714-585-1842. All right. Well, thank you so much. 
Thank you. Have a great weekend. You too. I'm Laferne Cusack, and this is ESPN LA 710. ESPN LA 710.